Welcome to Traveling Inside Out. This is Alina, your host. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> so, as you heard, new things are happening. It's time for a new beginning, a refresh, rebranding. <laughs> so, as I said last week, it was my one year anniversary and a few changes are coming your way. The first one, you just heard it. I have a new intro, a new jingle, a new everything. I have also a new logo, a new way of having my podcast art. And the giveaway is still happening. If you are interested in uh, knowing more about the giveaway, I would just suggest to listen to the last week's episode or just read the notes in uh, today's description. Before getting into today's episode, I just want to remind you that you can find my podcast on any platform uh, you are listening to your podcast on. And honestly, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate it on Apple Podcast. Thank you. And now to today's episode, I have, as I said uh, last uh, week, this month for uh, the following four weeks, so today and three more, I'm going to have only interviews. And I'm going to start now with my third Canadian. So today's episode is coming from Canada slash Iceland. Because I met uh, Micah, the next guest, when I was living in Iceland. I um, always have a, like, it's always a pleasure to talk with Canadians. And I've enjoyed this episode so much because it was interesting to hear a bit more about how a father, tour guide, and teacher relate to traveling. Enjoy! Right. So my name is Micah Quinn. Uh, I'm a Canadian living in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, I moved here in late 2015. I work as a teacher, an educator, and tour guide. And yeah, I do many things. I'm also a father, and I'm very passionate about outdoor education, geography, nature, and the environment. And uh, I love the adventurous life of living on the fringe of the Arctic Circle in Iceland. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining me. I didn't know if you if you finished uh, introducing yourself. Um, I wanted to say that, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. It took us a while, but finally we managed to do it. It's a pleasure. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but you are saying that you're happy because you're living so close to the to the north. But then where did you move? You said you're from Canada. But where did you live before moving to Iceland? Right. So I, I came from northwestern Canada, the far north uh, <laughs> region called the Yukon Territory. It's mm -hmm. basically a giant triangle. Uh, it's about five times the size of Iceland. If there are any listeners from Iceland uh, for this program, directly east of Alaska and north of British Columbia. So it's a pretty isolated part of the world. The town where I was living, Whitehorse, is only about 25,000 people. Uh, it's about a two-hour flight north of Vancouver. 
So it's not that huge of a difference between the population in Iceland and the one in back in your hometown, right? Yeah, I mean, if anything, Iceland is is larger. Iceland's population <laughs> is about ten times the population of the Yukon. <laughs> that, uh, it rarely happens when somebody says that Iceland is bigger than yeah, wherever. I've come to a big, the big city in quotation marks of Reykjavik. You know, Reykjavik, <laughs> even if you count every last suburb, it's about two hundred thousand people. And I came from a town of twenty-five thousand people, so you get the the perspective. What made you move to Iceland? Do you remember? I've always wanted to come to Iceland since I was quite young. The historical culture with Vikings and and the geography of the volcanoes and the the land here is very much alive, and uh, the environment is an important part of just your daily life. It's not easy here. There's the the sense of moderation doesn't really exist in the environment whether it's the geography, the weather, but also very much the culture. Uh, so it's what makes it interest, what makes it difficult also makes it interesting. And I had, an, I was very fortunate to have an opportunity in late 2015 to come here on a teaching contract. And I thought that would be a nice adventure and um, fit well with my life at the time, come to Iceland for six months and uh, you know, just experience a place I've always wanted to visit. And you know it's gone so well that I've been kept renewing my contracts, and now I've been here for three and a half years. So I'm curious, as um, okay, you you mentioned a little bit the contract, but outside of that, as um, a person who lives abroad, what are the challenges that you deal with on a daily basis or constantly? Um, specifically to Iceland, like living in Iceland from abroad. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've lived abroad. By abroad, I mean outside of Canada, where I was born and grew up several times. Iceland is unique. Um, in some ways, it's much easier. Uh, it's a very, I would say, relatively wealthy country, a high standard of living, low crime, low poverty. Um, it's quite comfortable and easy to live in Reykjavik, you know, walking to work and lots of amenities. You can get most types of food. There's even a Costco here. You know, it's easy to get around. It's a very safe and comfortable life. Almost everybody speaks English and as English being my first language, you know, it's easy to communicate with people. Uh, that being said, um, it's a small population and Everyone is kind of related and it's an island and uh, it's hard to break into the culture socially. So that's probably the most difficult part is, you know, integration as someone who is an outsider or an immigrant coming from a country of immigrants like Canada, you know, I'm, I'm sure it is challenging still as an immigrant, but here it feels that much more difficult and learning the language is quite difficult when you never are immersed in it because everyone also speaks English. So I don't need Icelandic to survive here, but to integrate socially, it's pretty crucial and it's very difficult to learn when you never have to speak it. Does that make sense? 
It totally makes sense uh, because that's how I improved my Spanish in my travels in South America. I had to speak Spanish because, and it was not like people wouldn't want to talk English with me. They legit did not speak any other language. Um, and in eight months, I improved my Spanish quite a lot in such a way that by the end of my travels, most of the local people, they, they didn't want to believe me that when I started my trip, I would barely say a few sentences in Spanish. They were like, no, 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 you, you learned this in school. And I'm like, I did learn this in school, but I didn't know, I was not a good student. <laughs> I was not, yeah. That was not the case. So yes, I know when you don't have to speak the language, then it's, it's a bit more difficult to actually yeah. learn it. Yeah, I mean, really, the, if you really want to learn Icelandic, you should work at a preschool, right? Because yeah. those, the, the Icelanders who are under the age of five are the ones who you have to speak Icelandic to. Uh, so that's sort of the most successful strategy I have heard about. You also have to just really want to learn the language. And perhaps I've been a little bit lazy. I can speak some basic Icelandic, but, you know, to just go and have a conversation at a bar with a group of people in Icelandic, I'm not able to do that. So, you know, that can be frustrating. Do you speak any other languages? Uh, I speak some French uh, through school in Canada and through traveling and practice. My French is definitely stronger than my Icelandic. I also spent a year in Japan, and, and although I've forgotten some, you know, I still know some Japanese. And I actually, my Japanese was far stronger when I left that country than my Icelandic has ever been. <laughs> uh, but language, you know, is like a muscle. You have to keep using it. Otherwise, yes. you know, you it gets out of shape and you forget things and you become bad at it. That's how it's... Um, so I, I lived in Turkey for one semester, so for four months. And at the end of those four months, I was able to go into a Turkish restaurant and order my food in Turkish. That's great. And now, the only thing that I remember is just I see some words and I'm like, oh, I used to know what this word means. <laughs> yeah, It gets awkward now, you know, when I try, <laughs> I accidentally mix French and Icelandic together and making this, creating a sentence that doesn't make any sense. Right. And then people really find it funny because you, you have all these bits of languages in your head and you, mm -hmm. if you put, you can't make the full sentence from a language, but if you grab mm -hmm. the words from different languages, it, it kind of makes sense to you, but nobody, everybody else is confused. So that can be quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So um, the big question, let's say, um, that I want to ask is, what is comfort zone for you? If you could give a definition or whatever, how do you relate to comfort zone? Wow. I mean, comfort zone just sounds easy when things are not challenging, right? And you feel completely relaxed. You know, inside my apartment is a comfort zone, right? I don't have to look a certain way. There's no one here to judge me. You know, I don't even have to wear any clothes. You know, I'm pretty comfortable <laughs> in my own apartment. You mm -hmm. know, the moment we step out our door, there is social expectations of us. So our comfort, you know, is slightly reduced. Mm -hmm. um, doing things where we're put in a new situation where we're not sure how to behave or react or having some expectation of, of a performance 
you know, that stretches our comfort zone. And certainly going to new cultures and countries where maybe we don't know how to act appropriately for the culture uh, or how to communicate well, you know, those where you have to kind of figure out the situation, you know, when you have to figure out the situation, that probably is a stretch on our comfort zone. Um, I, I think that's how I would answer that question. That's how you answered. <laughs> uh, then taking all that in consideration, do you think it's important to get outside of the comfort zone? And if yes, why? Why can't we just stay inside in our I home? mean, so, some people do. Um, I think we have different, every person is different and people have different levels of tolerance for stress. Mm -hmm. And the, the further outside of your comfort zone you are, probably the higher amount of stress you're dealing with. Now, stress isn't always bad. You know, stress can be mean something is interesting and exciting, trying to solve a problem. You know, exercise is a form of stress. Uh, but not everyone enjoys the same amount of stress or the same kind of stress. Uh, but I would say that when you are out of your comfort zone, in order to grow, in order to learn, in order to develop new skills, you need to be in new environments and practicing new, um, new things and being around new people. So being out of your comfort zone definitely allows you to grow as a person. Maybe that's not important for you. Maybe that's not a priority. Uh, maybe you have severe anxiety in situations and it's just, it's not worth it to you. So out of your comfort zone, I would say in, for most people in, in small amounts can be positive. In large amounts, it's probably overwhelming, uh, but it depends on the person what level of stress is adequate for your life, you know, to make it interesting, but not overwhelming. So how about you? Where do you draw the line as in, I can't go further than this when it comes to the comfort zone or when you feel like, oh, that's my line, then I have to go beyond that line. Yeah, I don't think for me, it's a clear, something that's clearly defined. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I find life interesting when things are a bit uncomfortable. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, whether it's hiking into a new environment, uh, starting a new job, doing something new is kind of exciting. The mystery of the unknown and, and learning, it's stressful, but I don't have a solid line. Sometimes you might find something, oh man, this is more difficult than I expected or more difficult than I would like, but maybe it's too late. Uh, I, I think I generally have a pretty high tolerance for stress and being out of my comfort zone. Maybe out of my comfort zone is the normal for me. Maybe I enjoy that. Uh, perhaps I have a short attention span. And so for things to be new and interesting uh, for me is quite invigorating. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never thought of having a strict line of comfort. I think maybe on certain days, hey, I just want to stay in my apartment today because I just need to recharge and uh, relax. And so I'm most comfortable being at home. Like today, it's a holiday. It's a national holiday for Iceland. It's the 75th anniversary of independence for this country. There's mm -hmm. a lot going on outside with parades and festivities yeah. and open houses. And By the way, how's the weather? 
Is it raining? Because it's it almost all raining. <gasps> no the way. Not raining on the national day. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, you're supposed to have rain on the national day here. But Iceland <laughs> has almost been in a drought, at least the Reykjavik area. There's barely been any rain for a month or more than that. What? So all the water levels are low and the grass is dry. It's weird. You know, if there were trees in this country, there would be, you know, a significant forest fire danger. But there's hardly any trees, as you know. So. Yeah. But I'm feeling, you know, my comfort zone right this morning is to just sit, be at home and relax. You know, do I really want to, you know, freshen up and go to the crowds and all the noise? Maybe this afternoon, you know, I, I would do that. But at the moment, I'm drawing the line of just staying in my apartment. So I think our comfort zones change, you know, day by day and season by season and even hour to hour. It's kind of where do you feel like what would be your natural default thing to do at this moment uh, and that will change you know over the course of a day and and your life and yeah. sometimes we want to be more out in places that we are forced to interact with others it's kind of connected to extrovertedness and introvertedness too right true 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 100 percent true um, and it's also because you were saying that it can change from one day to another it can change in time as well but I also, I also think that, um, or maybe it's just how I am. It's really, like, really, like, I don't think that challenging that comfort zone should be something that we do on a daily basis. Because there are people who are saying, no, you need to challenge yourself. Yeah, I am challenging myself, but I'm not going to do that every single day of my life because I have no energy for every sure. single my life to to do that right so this is something that is exactly what you were saying right so you raise a good point being out of your comfort zone requires more energy than not mm -hmm. right so you need to have the energy to do it and mm -hmm. our, everyone's energy fluctuates right yeah uh but when you have more energy you're probably more willing to do things uh that involve a higher level of stress whether that's good stress or bad stress yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very. But I, I like, my, yeah. yeah, yeah, tell me. No, please, go ahead. I was going to say one of my favorite things about traveling and living in new countries is it does put you out of your comfort zone because you're in a new environment. You may not even you know, know which way is north or west. You don't know how to navigate the city. You probably don't understand the language. There's new flavors, new tastes, new smells, new and people. It's yeah, it's even as in where do you go to buy your bread or where do you go to buy, you know, like even the little yeah. things are changing yeah. in the beginning. You know, being you... in the grocery store and, you know, you don't know which kind of milk is what because you can't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Especially if you don't understand the language. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are minor things. Do I When I went to the grocery store for the first time, was I totally overwhelmed and stressed and freaking out and running out the door? Me too. No. But it was a little difficult. You know, I had to ask uh, someone, you know, what is this milk? Is this what I'm looking for? You have to be a bit brave and a bit more outgoing to navigate in a place that you wouldn't be able to navigate completely on your own. So it forces you to come out of your inner shell and interact with people around you. And I think this is the difference that I've noticed between uh, uh, us because you you have no problem with asking people for help. You are even like, if I dare to say, thriving from asking people around for 
I like having questions for whatever information you need. While for me, it took me years to like years and years and years. And actually, I think living in Iceland started making me a little bit more, oh, I can actually ask people for help. Nothing will happen. Yeah, but you were forced to. Yeah, yeah, but, but like most of my life, I would be like, I'm either figuring it out by myself or I'm going to do a mistake and I'm just going to deal with the mistake. Mm. <laughs> well, by the time you get to be my age, it'll be even easier. You're not that far away. Like, we're not that... <laughs> Stop saying that. I'm not that young. Yeah, I got a few years on you. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> that is true. Um, so, because you were mentioning traveling and hiking, I would like to ask you, why do you travel? And, follow-up question, if you can make a, like a comparison or a difference between traveling and hiking... Okay. Um, so, so why do you travel? Why do I travel? Because the world is so interesting and varied and and fascinating, and my I find it very exciting to go to a new place for the first time and to explore and to learn. I'm very passionate about my first when I went to university. I studied geography, and I've always found it just the most interesting thing uh, to go to new places. I think I was eight years old and I got a jigsaw puzzle of like a map of the world. And I remember putting that together and then just looking at it and just seeing all the different countries on this puzzle that I'd made and just imagining what it would be like to be in those countries. Right. And now that I'm an adult, you know, I can work hard and save money and you know, tra and spend time in countries that I'm interested in, but also live in countries. So I've spent quite a bit of time in my life living and working for an extended period in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's almost an immersive experience. You know, of course, I take vacations. I went to Portugal for two weeks in April, and I did some hiking there. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I also came to Iceland for an extended stay to work. I've done that in Japan and in South Korea, I spent a year in Australia studying, right? So some people, I guess there's different ways to travel. Some people travel because they just want to relax. So you book a flight to a resort and you sit on a beach in one place for a week and you don't really go anywhere. It's not a learning experience. It's just to relax. And, and that's still traveling, but it's traveling without the purpose of learning and education, right? Mm -hmm. And I love traveling for the purpose of experiences, you know, experiencing new things and new cultures and being able to connect with new people. I've done enough traveling now that when I'm, especially as a tour guide, when I have people on my bus, there's a good chance I've been to their country. I understand somewhat where they come from and I can connect with them well and I can form, you know, good relationships and I can be a better guide for them because I understand their, their culture a bit better and they feel and more at ease and more trusting uh, and have a better experience on the tour because they feel they have a connection with me. And I feel like it's a genuine connection because I am interested in most people and cultures and I do make the effort to get to know them. Does that make some sense? It makes perfect sense. You do, yeah. yes, you do. You, you make a lot of sense. Um, oh. Then the comparison between traveling and hiking. 
I don't know if they are completely different things. Hiking involves moving by way of, you know, your own power by foot, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to be moving pretty slowly. You know, if even if you're a fast hiker, you're probably not going to go more than five kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe six if you're really speedy. And that's mm-hmm. on a good road or path. So mm-hmm. everything moves by you much more slowly. So I would say hiking is a subset of traveling, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can get on an airplane and fly a few hours somewhere else. The world goes by very quickly below you. You can get in a car and, you know, you go 100 kilometers an hour. The world's still going by pretty quickly. You can go on a bike ride. The things are going slowly, but not that slowly. Walking is the slowest form of transportation. It's the slowest form of traveling. So if you really want to get into the smells and the sights and the ground and the climate and the temperature and the animals and everything around you, hiking is the most experiential form of travel, in my opinion. And you can travel a long way by foot. When I was in Portugal, I was walking on the Portuguese Camino Trail. So I was traveling from Lisbon to Porto. You know, it was 400 kilometers I was hiking, which was my way to travel from the, between those two cities. You know, five years ago, I was hiking in the U.S. for four and a half months on something called the Pacific Crest Trail along the highest mountains in the western states. So I traveled from Mexico to Canada. So I was moving by foot. I was moving very slowly. But hiking was my form of travel in that summer. One hell of a summer. It was a hell of a summer. <laughs> Do you... Um, okay, so speaking of that, and because you mentioned that you are a father, uh, how do you combine your hiking with being a father? You are... Uh, how old is your child? My daughter uh, is nine months old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a pretty recent development in my life. Yeah. Um, But it means you don't have as your time is no longer as much your own. Mm-hmm. So really, realistically, could I go away and hike for five months? Probably not. Uh, when I was in Portugal, when we as a family went to Portugal for a couple of weeks, uh, um, my partner and Lillian, our daughter, they also came to Portugal and had a little camper van and kind of followed me along the trail. And did some sightseeing because, you know, I'm traveling very slowly. Well, they're able to travel pretty quickly. Uh, there was a small section where I actually carried Lillian about three kilometers of the trail. So she's done part of the Camino. <laughs> so, you know, for short distances, you can do that. You know, I could wear her in the carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly it's, um, it's not as easy at this point to hike with a young child, but certainly we can travel with her and she can come on the airplane and mm-hmm. we can go to Canada. We can do many things as mm-hmm. a family. I look forward to when she gets older, you know, where she can come hiking with me. And I hope she can develop those passions and we can share those adventures together. Um, you seemed rather fast to me. I don't know why you're saying you were slow. I mean, you were slower than a car for sure, but you, you seem rather fast uh, to me in your hike in Portugal. Weren't you though? Uh, I mean, I was walking around five kilometers per hour. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> fast. 
Yeah, but if most people, if you walk down the road and you have a GPS watch, you can walk that fast. Uh, the, I walked long days, and that was probably the difference between me and the majority of the hikers out there is I didn't stop at 2 o'clock. I, you know, I usually kept going several more hours, and so each day I ended up traveling further than most of the other hikers mm -hmm. on the trail. Was I that much faster than everybody else? I don't think so. I mean, maybe a little bit probably the average person is walking four kilometers an hour and maybe I was walking five. Uh, but I simply didn't stop. I walked much further each day. Partly because I had time pressure. You know, I only had 12 days to do the walk and I wanted yeah, to get okay. to Porto. So I had some sort of, I was some motivation to, to walk longer. And mm -hmm. plus I enjoy the challenge, the physical challenge. It's not meant for me. It's not meant to be easy. It's, I want to feel at the start of the day, wow, can I do this? I want to be out of my comfort zone, as you mentioned. <laughs> it, as and in a person in a physical challenge kind of way, can I do this? Can I walk, you know, 48 kilometers and get to Fatima? You know, I wasn't sure that I could with my backpack and you know the warm weather and the hills I had to go through. So it's like, wow, can I do this? So I start the day a little bit scared and stressed because I don't know if I can make my goal. Right. So I set a goal and I try and reach it. And it's very satisfying when you do. Right. You push yourself a little bit to the limit. And sometimes you even you get to your limit, you got to keep going, even if your feet are sore and you're tired and dirty and thirsty and everything hurts. You know, it's so much of it is a mental game. Oh, and yeah. It's amazing how much you can do when you put your mind to it. But I, I truly believe that uh, through traveling or if you want through hiking is when you really uh, understand how you are, or at least this is how I've seen it. I felt way more stronger after I start doing the traveling or hiking by myself and all that, because before I was like, no, I'm not prepared. I can't do this. No, this is going to be too heavy. This is going to be too hard. I don't, I can't climb a mountain and all those things. And then I went and done all of them. I climbed the freaking volcano and I'm like, oh, so I can do this. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm actually that stronger and even more than I thought. Oh, okay. But I, I could never knew that if I didn't do it basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, through experiences comes confidence mm -hmm. and it's easy to doubt yourself and overthink situations and think of everything that could go wrong and basically box yourself in with fear. And that can be a real barrier for many people who never then take the chance to go out and do these things because they don't believe that they, they're capable of it. I so we kind of put, we put these walls around us thinking that things aren't possible for us when, you know, really they are. We just, we just don't believe in ourselves. I have these moments uh, when I'm, like most of my time, I'm traveling by myself, as you know, and I think my listeners know as well, um, in which if there's something wrong, whatever that thing, either I, I missed a bus or whatever ha happened, and I take, like I, I'm giving myself like, okay, I need to freak out. I need to panic. I need to be angry. So I'm giving myself like, okay, five minutes, go with it. 
<laughs> and yeah. then calm yourself down and solve whatever the situation is. But I'm always like giving myself the moment being upset on myself or like being mm -hmm. scared or being frustrated or whatever would be. And then I'm like, okay, so I have this amount of time. I need to do like get it all out and then back on track, back on finding a solution to whatever the issue is. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like quite a mature approach to emotional self-regulation and where you know what you need to do to help reset and reground yourself after dealing with some adversity. And adversity is inevitable. We try and minimize, you know, things going wrong, but they will go wrong. And yeah, we need, that's, And yeah. we need to be able to function in circumstances where bad things happen, right? And emotional regulation is a big part of that. And you, you seem to have recognized how to do that in a way that works for you. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love the fact that you said that it's, yeah, the thing is that it's okay for things to not go well, because that's what happens. Like, um, I know I had this conversation with other friends and I was like, I think the first thing, and I, I keep seeing, I keep saying this, the first thing is to not panic if you panic. Like, it's, it's fine. Like, it's really fine if something bad happens because you cannot and you will never be able to control everything. It's just impossible. So, okay, something happened. It's fine if that happened, but don't let it overwhelm you completely to the point that you're just stuck into a corner and you cannot move for days or months or something like that. Correct. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and talking about that, um, please tell me some of the challenges that you encounter as a, tra a travel guide. I'm really curious, what are some challenges that you can have? Your job. Sure. Some of them are very logistical. You know, mm -hmm. how are we going to every morning, you know, you get the pickup list. What is the best way to pick everyone up at the different locations? Mm -hmm. And sometimes, especially on trips that are more than one day, people have a lot of luggage. So how are we going to fit everyone's suitcases into the bus? Do we need to get a trailer or can we get away without a trailer? It's always a bit of a, a gamble, a calculated risk. You'd rather not have a trailer, but then sometimes, you know, 18 people all have extra large suitcases, <laughs> all right? So these are some challenges to start the trip. Sometimes people aren't where they're supposed to be or they're not there at the right time, you know, so that can be a challenge. Some people have mobility issues, right? You're going on a hiking tour, but then they can barely get into the bus. So that's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people have the wrong equipment or the wrong clothing or the wrong shoes. Right. So people who are not prepared for the tour, right, for one reason or another, or they're on the wrong tour for them because either they didn't research it well or their friend booked the trip and they didn't really communicate between each other. So those are all challenges. You also have within the group dyma dynamics, most of my trips are under 20 people, often 12 to 16. And you can have people from all, all countries of the world. Um, and Certain cultures, you know, have maybe they don't get along that well together or people have a different traveling style. Some people are very on time. You say be back, you know, at 1130 from the waterfall. They're there at 1125 every stop. Other people are going to be 15 minutes late every tour. So mm -hmm. that can be frustrating when people make an effort to be on time and other people just are, you know, always going to be late. Keep makes it hard to run the tour on a schedule, especially if you have specific 
time-sensitive attractions, uh, mm -hmm. like a caving tour that's booked, and we have to be there at a certain time, otherwise we miss it. All right, so these are all challenges throughout the day. Some people, you know, find the bus will too hot, while someone at the same time will find it too cold. Some people <laughs> love playing music, other people don't want any music. Right? People, some people feel motion sick, right? So they want to be at the front of the bus, or some people make a mess on the bus with their snacks. Uh, there's lots of things, but there's also wonderful elements as well. Uh, and seeing a group, you know, over the course of a day or several days, get to know each other and become a really strong team and ultimately become friends, right? And then you don't want to leave each other because you've bonded so well over the mm -hmm. course of the tour and the adventure. So, I mean, those are some of the real fun and wonderful moments. Um, so then, because you said that you lived and traveled quite a lot all around the world, and you get to also meet, uh, through your job, a lot of people from different nationalities. So is there a place where you would not uh, travel to, and why? Um, so I, I know it's become a thing. There's even a Netflix show about kind of dark tourism or disaster tourism where people go to war zones or really macabre places where there had been a lot of death or, mm -hmm. you know, places where you've had nuclear disasters. Uh, that doesn't have a lot of appeal to me. You mm -hmm. know, I don't want to go into places that are recklessly dangerous or, you know, where there is a lot of trauma and pain of the local people in the area. I don't see that as an appealing thing as a tourist, mm -hmm. right? So I'm quite, although I love history and cultures and that's very interesting, I'm, I'm especially attracted to places with amazing geography and scenery, especially mountain scenery. So Iceland has, you know, an unending amount of it, even in this relatively small country, I feel like I've only seen a little bit, but I love going to places where I can really access nature you know, spend a, a day or two in cities, but then get out away from populated areas and just be on the land. Was that why Q to tell you to come to Romania? <laughs> I, I would love to come to Romania. Uh, I've got to figure out now, of course, a bit the logistics. With the, well, I just have to make it happen. And with the baby now, it's, my amount of free time I have for traveling and how I can travel is different. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm, it's still a learning process for me. It's the, the first, I'm in the first year of being a father and I've only had one real vacation with a baby. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm not traveling as much as I have in the past. So I'm curious when you decide to travel into uh, a new country, how do you choose? How do you choose where to travel? Uh, let's say before you were a father. Okay, so now everything changed, but it's just recently that you became a father. How do, how you used to choose where uh, you travel? I think word of mouth counts for a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. Where people who I know have had very good experiences in a country. Uh, the time of year that I have the availability to travel makes a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, for example... Uh, two and a half years ago, I went to Morocco over the Christmas holiday. Mm -hmm. uh, and because that was the best time to go to Morocco, I would never go there in the summer. I don't do well in very hot environments. I really struggle 
And so I would never go to Africa at any other time than the winter. Um, I was actually looking for a sunny destination and most of Europe in December, January is cooler and maybe rainy, even places like Spain and Portugal. So I thought, well, I'll go a little bit further south, Morocco weather, low 20s every day, still sunshine. Mm -hmm. Never been to Africa. So it was like, hey, I, I should go to Africa. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the, the, time, the time, the season and the climate matter to me, going to new places, very interesting. I've done a lot of travel in the Arctic, you know, spending so much time in Northern Canada and now Iceland, I find just um, the cultures of the Arctic quite interesting. They have a lot of similarities and connections, this lack of moderation, especially when it comes to daylight and how the darkness and extreme light in the summer, you know, affect people's lifestyle because mm -hmm. it's a common bond around the Arctic countries. And so I've made an effort even since being in Iceland to visit some of the neighboring, neighboring Arctic regions like Greenland and the Faroe Islands. And I went to Russia and I have been, I've been to Finland now. So I've been to, I've actually been to all of the Arctic countries. There's still lots mm -hmm. to explore, but that's been very fascinating for me, you know, coming from Northern Canada. Why is that? Or how? Okay, I'm curious about something. <laughs> Maybe I can Google it, but whatever. How is the architecture um, compared with the North European countries? Yeah, I mean, I think the architecture, when you live in a more extreme environment, becomes quite functional, you know, and less glamorous. Uh, I've always been blown away by the architecture in Europe and how old the buildings are. Yeah, North, okay. In Canada, we don't have that history of architecture. And even in Iceland, because it was so isolated, the geology here in the rock is mostly lava rock, which is not suitable for construction. Um, you don't have a long history here of grand buildings, right? Most mm -hmm. things are 20th century. Even the parliament and the old church are 19th century so even in this European country that I live in, the architecture in Eastern North America is significantly older than here. So this is not a land of sort of classic European cathedrals and old buildings. Uh, it's much more f functional, a lot of stucco homes and metal siding. And the city really developed after the Second World War. So many of the buildings and homes, especially in the suburbs, you know, are less than 70 years old. And even the very oldest buildings in the country are only from the 1800s. Holy ghost. <laughs> yeah. And when I went to Greenland, it was similar. You know, I think yeah. there are older buildings in Northern Europe because people have simply been there longer and there are things like forests and, you know, good, good, built, good building materials of stone. But Iceland was so isolated for most of its history that you don't have, you know, they simply weren't able to build long-term structures. People lived in turf houses, oh, you yeah. know, until World War II. Yeah. Um, okay, but then, <clears throat> how is that? Because you said that you lived in Japan and South uh, Korea as well. How is that compared uh, with... Where did you live in Japan, actually? What so I lived, in a, I lived in a rural area in southwest Japan, 
uh, on the mm -hmm. southwestern tip of Honshu. The prefecture was called Yamaguchi. Mm -hmm. And so I was there on a one-year contract on something called the JET program, which has been around for several decades. And they place foreign English speakers mainly into the public schools to give the local youth exposure to other cultures and to help mm -hmm. to learn English. Yeah. I was close. I was about two hours from Hiroshima, if that gives people some context. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Coming back to being a travel guide, do you have any suggestions for someone who wants to start uh, this career as a travel guide, as a tour guide? Right. I mean, there's different things. How do you start? It's, it's, it's such a broad field, okay. right? You can go mm -hmm. to a tourism school where they teach you all the outdoor activities from mountaineering to rafting to bus driving and rock climbing. Um, you can also be a walking tour guide in the city. I, I got into it when I was finishing university. I was 23 and... I, with a background in geography and a lot of experience driving, having lived in a isolated area, I was hired and trained to get my bus license. Certainly having a bus license is quite helpful because most places in the world need people driven around. So as a driver guide, you know, I can take a group of people around for the day, drive the bus and, you know, show, show them a great experience. Many guides don't drive the bus. You know, they have usually for larger buses, you have someone who does the commentary, which is separate from the driver. Um, but there's lots of programs available for people who want to work in tourism, uh, even if you don't necessarily want to be a driver. But I would say since I had my bus license since I was 23, I've always been able to find work in guiding um, anywhere that I've lived. Uh, certainly having experience in the backcountry, if you want to be more of a hiking guide as possible, uh, having things like a wilderness first responder certificate, which is, you know, a higher level first aid training is helpful and having a lot of experience, you know, with camping and being in remote areas and, you know, showing good judgment and leadership. Uh, I also have an education background as a teacher. So, you know, my profession is leading groups of people and teaching them things and keeping them safe. So that has a lot been a nice, um, it's allowed me to be more versatile, you know, not mm -hmm. just being a classroom teacher, but also being an educator in nature, which is how I see a large part of my job as a guide. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think I have a last question for you. I don't know if I'm going to come up with something else uh, after you answer. Um, you kind of answered to this throughout the interview, but I will ask you precisely, uh, what did traveling teach you? Hmm. What did traveling teach me? That's a good question. <laughs> I think it really broadens our minds and realized makes us, I want to say, open-minded and understanding and patient when it comes to people from different cultures and backgrounds and that the way we were raised, you know, isn't necessarily, not only is it not the only way, but it's not the only right way that there are many ways, you know, to live 
life and they're all okay and we learn from each other i think it's the one of the most important uh methods we have for breaking down stereotypes fear uh xenophobia and uh and reducing conflict around the world through cultural misunderstanding i think if we all get along and understand and try and love each other and learn from each other, you know, the world is a better place. And the more that people travel with this attitude to learn from each other and uh, the, the easier countries get along. And also we have a better appreciation for the environment. You know, when you see, you know, the beauty of this world and traveling different places and seeing how fragile it is, especially in places like the Arctic where glaciers are melting and the landscape is changing and new, new, species of vegetation and animals are appearing and disappearing and uh, you know how unstable it all is right and having a strong sense by experiencing that having an even stronger sense of you know how important it is to protect our environment um i have yeah uh i just wanted to say that you started your answer by saying patience and it's funny because Uh, I had two other Canadians on my podcast and one of them said exactly this and I love it. Of course, then you evolved in, into a different answer, but the key word was patience. patience. Uh, yeah, the same that she said and I'm like, I love the Canadian <laughs> patience. You just love Canadians. You know, you, you have yeah. me on because I'm Canadian. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That's how it works. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing, sorry, just to follow up, when talking about comfort zone and being yeah. in areas of stress, when you've gone through, when you've been very much out of your comfort zone in difficult situations and come through it, and you realize, you know, what adversity and stress and difficulty really is, when you've really been stretched way further than you can ever imagine, your patience for, for being uncomfortable is much larger. You can put situations in context thinking well geez this isn't that bad you know i hiked 30 kilometers on a busted ankle you know and i survived so you know i'm gonna make it this 20 minutes you know with a blister I'm, i'll be okay you know mm-hmm. that's one example so your your perspective for what is tolerable changes and usually you're as a result of that you have much greater patience uh for being outside of your comfort zone um the more that you travel. And this is gonna be the last question. <laughs> Did you um, say that last? Go ahead. Yeah, I'm so happy. What? <laughs> what makes you happy, Micah? Oh, now you're just <laughs> don't, don't get sad. <laughs> oh, now I'm sad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I tend to be a people person. Mm-hmm. I enjoy being in new environments. I enjoy being a little bit out of my comfort zone and my comfort zone is pretty broad. So it, uh, so I, I'm happiest when I'm learning, when I'm around small groups of people and being outside and maybe trying to solve some fun problem as well as eating, you know, delicious food and drink along the way. That yeah, I'm all about uh, having amazing food. I know I'm all about it. Yeah, having um, amazing experiences, right? Amazing yeah. experiences with amazing people. Yes, 100% and, agreed. 
and variety is also is one of the most interesting things. And so the world is big enough that you have a never ending sense of variety when you travel and it's always different and interesting and new. Yeah. I and I think it's also important to discover the variety uh, around you because you don't always need to travel one ocean away. Of uh, course. Sometimes you can have it just around you and I think we tend to forget this. Uh, yeah, there's places in Reykjavik, you know, that I've just discovered recently after three years thinking, wow, why have I never been yeah. there before? It's only 10 minutes away. So, of mm. course, and one thing that keeps me in Iceland, other than all the things I mentioned, is that there's so many places even here to explore. So mm -hmm. Everywhere in the country you go is interesting and beautiful and, you know, it's never ending. So I, I just love it also for that reason. Yeah, this is something that a lot of people ask me, how much time do I need to to see Iceland? And I'm like, well, you can see it in three days or you can see it in months and months. It really yeah. depends on you, what you want to see and what you want to experience and what you want to explore. Uh, yeah. So I guess it's the same with uh, what you were saying, right? Yeah, everywhere is like this, but it takes time. <laughs> yes. And patience. <laughs> That's the seems like the theme of today is patience. Yes, perfect. Um, I don't have any more questions. I promise that was the last one. Uh, so if you have anything else to say, uh, if not, I'm gonna get to the end, let's say. Well, I just want to say, Alina, thank you for having me on your program and for being patient with. Uh, <laughs> you know, the time it took for us to find a good time and schedule and to be able to make it happen. Um, it was a lot of fun. So thank you for your challenging questions. I enjoyed speaking with you about it. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, thank you. The thing is, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but when I think it was like my first two episodes on the podcast and you told me, when can I be your guest? And back then I was like, I'm not having guests. What are you even talking about? So I guess it's kind of the other way around, Micah. Thank you yeah, for, for the patience. Like almost one year later, you are indeed a guest in my podcast. We finally made it happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you made the time today. And no problem. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it, it was a really nice conversation. And it was nice catching up with you. Oh, well, it's been great. So I hope it continues to go well. This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing to alinaswonders at gmail.com. Until next time, follow your dreams and stay true to yourself.